1: Maryland, and we are thrilled to be a part of Pratt Library's Writers Live event with author Justin Fenton and his AARP conversation partner, Clarence Tiger Davis. AARP Maryland has nearly 900,000 members across the state, and we are working to help those 50 plus and their families to live life to the fullest. While we're working to support family caregivers, fight for affordable and reliable utilities, protect loved ones from fraud and scams, and build new tools to help working Marylanders save for retirement, we are also engaged in fun and educational programming. From free virtual movie events, workshops, and social opportunities, what we're doing just might surprise you. Today, we are here because AARP was created to uplift the voices and experiences of all people. We understand the need to create space for dialogue around removing obstacles to make equitable uh, pathways in society, addressing disparities and systemic issues that prevent positive outcomes in our social determinants of health and supporting efforts to educate, inform, and renew marginalized communities so that they may become places that are not repressed, but places that thrive. AARP works and supports efforts to educate and inspire elected officials, local leaders, planners, and citizen activists about how to identify their community-specific needs and then create and implement programs, policies, and procedures as well as projects that will help meet those needs. ARP Maryland is making a difference where you live every day, and we would love to hear from you. If you're interested in learning more about AARP Maryland or becoming a volunteer, check us out at arp.org/md. We at AARP Maryland are thankful to be here with you all today, tonight and excited to hear a dynamic conversation. I will now turn it over to Mr. Malvo from Pratt to continue the program. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Joy. It's a pleasure to co-host with AARP Maryland. It's an important uh, conversation tonight. Good evening, I'm Herb Malvo from the Pratt Library and thank you for joining us for tonight's Writers Live, Justin Fenton, We Own This City. Before introductions, I wanted to go through a couple virtual logistics for today. If you're watching on Zoom, please click on the Q&A button on your screen and use the chat to post questions. And if you're watching on Facebook, please post in the comments. Both are being monitored and a survey will be posted near the end of the program. So your feedback will help us serve you in upcoming programs. I wanna highlight a couple of uh, the library's important programs. The Pratt Library has a social worker in the library program which provides social services throughout the community in cooperation with agencies and organizations throughout the city. So if you or you know, someone who needs help please email social worker at prattlibrary.org or contact any branch library for a referral. also Think that you might be interested in joining us at 10 locations throughout the library system as we are joining with mpt and nea's big read program we're discussing lab girl by hope yarn at all these locations and if you want to join us just look at the website in our events column for locations dates and times finally i want to uh, ask you to support our bookstore partner, the Ivy Bookshop, and order a copy of We Own This City directly from them. There will be a link to the Ivy Bookshop's website posted on Zoom and Facebook. And now for tonight's speakers. Justin Fenton has been a reporter at the Baltimore Sun since 2005, covering crime and justice system for the past 13 years. He was a part of the Pulitzer finalist team that covered the death of Freddie Gray and was twice named the finalist for a Livingston Award for Young Journalists. Another fine example of his work can be found in the series Chasing a Killer where he went behind the scenes of a homicide investigation in Baltimore's deadliest year. We Own This City is his first book and it is the basis for a forthcoming HBO miniseries. He is a graduate of the University of Maryland. His conversation partner tonight is Clarence Davis, affectionately known as Tiger. He has served his community in many different capacities. He is a former post commander of the American Legion Post, a member of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, Black Vets of all wars, vet, excuse me, Vietnam Veterans of America, and he founded the African-American Patriots Consortium, which promotes and celebrates the history of African-Americans in defense of the nation. In November, 1982, Mr. Davis was elected to the House of Delegates for the Maryland General Assembly, where he held several leadership positions prior to his retirement in December, 2006. Tiger served in the capacity of AARP Maryland State President from 2012 through 2017. So it's time now to welcome them both and give them a warm virtual welcome to both Justin Fenton and Clarence Tiger Davis.
3: Thank you very much, Mr. Malvo, and Justin, and to all of, to everyone that's on this call. Thank all of you, AARP and A Pratt. You're providing a great service for the community. And Justin, I want to congratulate you on your dissertation, you everything in this book is true. I I know firsthand, I live in Northeast Baltimore where a lot of the events uh, and the police officers uh, were stationed. And so I know firsthand much of what you have talked about and no one would ever believe people from the community, but thanks to you, our story can now be told. Justin, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me. and Thank you to uh, Mr. Davis. Thank you to AARP and the Pratt Library. I spent a lot of time uh, researching at the Pratt. I have an overdue book right now. I apologize. I'll get it back as soon as I can. And I also use the uh, microfilm to look back in the old clips. So uh, it's a great service. And I'm really, really pleased to be here. So thank you, everybody.
3: Okay. Listen, what made you uh, decide to write uh, this book on this particular topic?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I'm a newspaper reporter. Um, I, I had not ever really contemplated uh, writing a book. Um, and the events that I was covering for the paper had just been so intense. They were always intense, but really things since t- 2015, it's just been an incredible um, you know, confluence of events. And so actually, uh towards the end of the gun trace task force trial, uh David Simon, a, a Baltimore Sun alum, uh TV producer he called me up and said, you got to write a book, man. And I said, I, well, how am I going to do that? And <laughs> he said, I'll, I'll, I will show you. Uh, so I, really, that's where the idea came from, but, but it made so much sense because as a newspaper reporter, you know, you cover these things day by day and you try to include as much context as you can. Um, but you know, you have a thousand words, you have 800 words, maybe 1500 if you get lucky and all this stuff needed to be put into its context that all this stuff happened at the same time. The, the, the uprising surrounding Freddie Gray, the consent decree reforms, the Justice Department investigation, the gun trace task force corruption, the death of Sean Souter, and we're still dealing with the fallout now. So you know, I, it was really important to me. Uh, it was it was valuable to me to be able to step back from my daily reporting and sort of just just pull back and, and get deeper into things and also show how they intersected.
3: What did you find most surprising about your research?
0: You know, I, I really went into it thinking I'm going to find... A smoking gun. You know, I'm going to find someone else who was in on it. And and honestly, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, what happened was that it's a real, it's a it's a um, it's a real uh, uh, complicated situation. Um, you know, these guys were doing this stuff for a long time and getting away with it. And there was um, the reasons for that are complex. And so, you know, the the institutional malaise. I think uh, it didn't surprise me, but the way that it it, it allowed this stuff to happen the way that people feeling as though they weren't weren't going to be believed the way, even their defense attorneys didn't think they could bring things up because it would actually hurt their clients. Um, the way the middle managers said that they didn't really know what was going on because they weren't doing a good job supervising their officers. I was, I was not surprised by that, but it was something that as I got deeper into it, I found that this really was becoming a, a these themes were so important for understanding what, what happened.
3: You know, Justin, uh, my experience, and the experience of many people I've, I've spoken to in the community, is that the middle managers never really wanted to know, and so that begs the question uh, about the culture that exists, you know, in the police department. When the one young man joined the task force, uh, he was already accustomed to scamming off the top uh, any money that was found or what have you. So it would appear that, uh, despite the fact that the average police officer is making what, a 170000 dollars a year. When you add up the 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 uh, uh, overtime and for the courts and all, what compels? Uh, what do you think compels these young people who join the police force with great ambition to do good? What made them turn? If it was not the culture,
0: yeah, I think that um. You know, the police department incentivizes this in a way, um, and those who are so inclined to do these things will find an environment or or were able to find an environment where they were able to get away with this, this kind of stuff. You know, the agency has been battling crime for decades, and people have looked to them and said, you know, you need to get crime down. What are you doing about crime? Police commissioners get fired. Uh, over, you know, high crime rates and things like that. For so long, we've looked to police to solve these issues, and the police, in turn, push that downward. They, they, you know, they could, the commissioner pushes that down to the deputy, pushes it down to the, you know, so on and so on, and it gets pushed down to the streets where they're told do something about this. Um, I, I, I try to weave throughout the the early part of the book and and throughout the latter part as well, just sort of some of the pressures, the external pressures to get crime down that led to um you know this unit being valued and being re- rewarded for what they were doing um sorry my this is the what you get when you're doing a event at home my cat is uh rubbing on me right now he's distracting me <laughs> he's striped like a tiger so maybe he, he heard that you were on the call and he hey, came
3: leave, leave family alone.
0: <laughs> but uh but yeah i mean um so and then, then I, you know, there was one officer I talked to that didn't actually make the book, but I'll share it here. Um, there was an officer I, who, I, who I had been suspected of wrongdoing. He's left the department, and I, I wanted to talk to him. I felt, felt like because he was gone, you know, maybe he might be willing to tell me uh, some things about what happened. And he told me first that he didn't do any of the stuff he was accused of doing, um, and he was going to explain to me how he was wronged, how he was railroaded by the department. And I, I sat down with him and I, I, I agreed to meet with him under those terms, but I told him, I, I don't believe you when I sat down with him. And he looked at me and he said, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. And, um, you know, I, I, I gave him anonymity because I wanted him to tell the truth and he wasn't going to commit, confess to crimes. If, if he was, uh, you know, if, if, I, if I was going to name him, but he, the way the explanation that he gave to me was that he felt wronged by the department and his way of hurting the department was to hurt the citizens, to take it out on them. And if he was, going to do these bad things, um, that was his way of getting back. So I think some of these things are greed. Uh, some of them are, you know, it, it's, it's something that's in the course of doing their work and others it's, it's you know, it can be as, as uh, nasty as like vengeance.
3: Now, I know your, your book focuses on uh, this one particular unit, uh, but out here in the community, there is a perception that the police are uh, part and parcel Of the illegal drug trade. In fact, in the community, they believe that the police promote and are responsible for many of the assassinations or murders that occur in the community. For instance, uh, police officers will pick up a young man, ride him around in their car so other people can see him. Then all of a sudden they say, well, you know, maybe he's a snitch or what have you. Uh, There are a couple of kids I know from my neighborhood who've had to leave town. Uh, because the police set them up that way to be murdered. And so it is, we're hard-pressed in the community uh, to see the culture of the police department in any other way because we see so many people benefiting from it and we see them getting away with violence. Um, you know, my first year in the legislature, uh, Shanahan killed a good friend of mine, Booker Lancaster, a motorcyclist. Uh, they had an altercation at Broadway in Harford. There was about 40 to 50 people on, in the area. And they saw the altercation. And they also saw a sergeant come on after uh, Booker Lancaster was shot. And, and they put a knife out there by uh, a Booker Lancaster's hand. And everybody in the community saw that. And this never really came up in court. There's a, a, a big story behind all of that because we had big time demonstrations back then because we had just elected Kurt Smoke as the state's attorney. And, and there that, that was some political change going on where the community had a real expectation that change was going to come. But change never came because it appeared that despite the fact that we had three successive African-American police commissioners who promised certain changes uh, in terms of two-for-one hiring to bring up the number of minorities within the police force. Those things don't happen. Community police, it never really happened. So what are the answers? How are we going to get back to the kind of police force that truly serves the community? And, and, and let me add this too, that also serves the young officers. Those young kids come on that police force, these are good people. And they come on and, and they, they want to do good. They want to clean up the community. I know some young police officers, white ones, black ones, whatever. They take their off-duty time and come back in the community to work with kids. Now, those are the kind of young police officers that we, we have on the force right now. Now, what happens, and, and I assume that all of those guys came on with those great expectations, but the culture in the police department straight up and down uh, subjected them to that kind of the kind of behavior that we saw in this unit here because they got away with it they could get away with it
0: yeah i mean i think that's that's the million dollar question right i mean these are really difficult issues i think for the longest time we thought of you know i i think it was unclear how much change could be effectuated within these certain systems i mean it, doing the same things maybe changing them up a little bit you know, but, but largely doing the same thing and expecting different results. And I think over time, um, some things got ingrained in the department in terms of, you know, things that people could get away with or units that were, you know, maybe, maybe tacitly told or even directly told that they were, they were able to work in a gray area and get away with things. And, you know, I think that the, the criminal justice system, um, it puts a lot of trust in police officers. I mean, uh, pre-body cameras, you know, it really is. An officer is structurally trusted to tell the truth. If they take the stand, the system is is saying we are going to believe this officer because we put that trust in them. They they took an oath. They're supposed to tell the truth and they inherently trust them. I was I was struck by going over some of the um, old cases involving these officers earlier in their careers and even in the recent future, in in, uh, the recent past in 2015, where their word would be questioned. And a judge might even throw out the evidence and say, you know, I, I, I don't find that you did the right thing, but you know, they would say, but, but, but you're doing a good job, you know, keep it up. <laughs> and, and I I think that the message was sent that, you know, if you, if you don't do something right, you know, we, we generally trust that you were trying to do the right thing. Um And, and maybe they were, Um you know, it, there are, there are a lot of split second decisions being made out there and um you know, a lot of, a lot of laws that they're expected to know. And, and so I think there's a, a, a they are told that you know it's gonna be okay you know and and I think that 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 has caused problems so i you know I'm interested now we have a, we've had a tremendous amount of of change lately um some would say not enough uh, some would say too much but but we' are going through an interesting time where I think city leaders are talking about and not just talking about it but 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 showing that they intend to approach these issues in a different way from a public health perspective uh, that the department is is going to be reformed and, I, and we're just gonna to have to see how this plays out because a lot of people think this department can't be reformed. Police can't be reformed generally, that it's just not a good way to handle a lot of this stuff. And we need to find other ways. And I think for, for maybe the first time we're we're starting to explore some of those things and we're going to see, you know, what else is out there. And if it, if it does work better, because don't forget, I mean, this country is seeing a tremendous spike in, in gun violence again. Some cities are back to 1990s rates and and these things are, this reform and this violent crime is why, you know, I wonder if once again, we're gonna find ourselves in a situation where we're using that, that hammer, you know, to, to try to get out of it. So, it, but that's that's the million dollar question.
3: Okay, the, the Maryland Police Accountability Act of 2021, uh, because, you know, when I was in the legislature, we we put protections on the police officers, okay. I'm guilty, I'm guilty, okay. Now, we have the Maryland Police Accountability Act uh, 2021. Do you think that will really impact behavior of police officers?
0: Well, like I said, I think it's an exciting time. I mean, I I think this is one of your later questions, but returning the department to city control is just, I mean, since what is it 18, 1850, 1875, it's been this way. I mean, you know, this is interesting, you know, I, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be a good thing. There's all sorts of, I think challenges that could come with local control, but it, you know, gosh, we haven't done it yet. <laughs> so let's try it. And I'm excited about the transparency of disciplinary records for the longest time. This state said, you cannot see police disciplinary records, even though that you can see them in Florida, even though you can see them in, you know, Many states. It was just this thing that was like never going to happen. And I honestly thought that after the gun trace task force scandal, and it raised so many serious issues about long term mismanagement and and things like that. When that didn't happen after that, I, I wasn't sure it was ever going to happen. And, and and lo and behold, after George Floyd, George Floyd was this call to to the country, and 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 the, the legislature passed a lot of sweeping reforms. Again, we'll, we 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 have to see how they go. <laughs> um, I, I think that. You know, civilian review boards are interesting. The transparency is interesting. The return to city control. And you know, we've got body cameras. There's so many things happening right now. We've legalized drugs in Baltimore, essentially. Um, we're, we've got a lot of things happening all at once, and it's a, it's a very interesting time. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this question. Okay.
3: When will the movie come out? When is the series going to start?
0: <laughs> the series is going to start filming later this summer. And uh, again, for those who don't know, it's being made by uh, David Simon and George Pelicanos and Ed Burns, the team behind the wire and, and other great shows. And um, it's going to be it's going to be based on the show and have the same title. And it's a six part miniseries and it should air sometime next year.
3: Now, let me ask you this, because with this showing, uh, do you think this will raise optimism uh, that change can come about? With, with the show yes
0: you know i think i don't know the show's gonna have a lot of optimism i think it's gonna raise more i, I think you know a, a lot of the discussion rightfully so with black lives matter and, and and conversations like that were around force and rightfully so you know people losing their lives is, a, is a, always going to be that uh, um, a very 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 serious thing but i think you know this wave of corruption cases in, in cities like philadelphia detroit um, there's, there's been a, a several, um, Houston has one going on right now that showed sort of not force necessarily, but, but the way officers who were in this proactive policing were sort of given a long leash, let's say, let's, let's get, let's say that, um, in the best of circumstances, it was a long leash to, to, to do all kinds of things. And, and were able to get away with all kinds of things. And this awareness that, you know, I think we're seeing with, with body cameras, that, that trust I talked about earlier, that officers are, 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 Inherently trusted by the system, they're losing that trust, and as a result of losing that trust, that's what's caught, that, that's what's bringing the reforms. And I think you see a tremendous pushback from officers, though, saying, "Now we can't do our jobs. Now we won't do our jobs." You know, I, I do hear that from officers I know. Not not all of them. Some of them think that the reform is, is a great thing, but others say, "You know, I, I don't feel like I feel like if I do what the public needs me to do, which is confront criminals, I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble." Um, I don't think people want me to do that anymore. And so I'm going to do, you know, what I, what I have to. And so I, I, I don't feel, I think, you know, I would like to say I'm optimistic, but I think there's a lot of reasons to, to still have concern and we have to see this through.
3: You know, one of the things that, you know, ARP has been focusing on for quite some time is the concept of livable uh, communities. And, you know, when i talk talked to people who live outside the city they don't can't understand how I can live in the city and be happy. <laughs> okay, so uh, I believe that you know the work that you have done. Because I'm going to purchase five of these books. I'm going to make this mandatory reading for young people in my neighborhood. Okay, wow. uh, especially certain types. Okay, like the Shropshires and all of these guys. Man, they need to read it because I see them every day. You know, they're on every corner, Uh, well, let's say not every corner, but they're on certain corners throughout the neighborhood. And I talked to uh, many of these youngsters uh, in the neighborhood, but you know, the one thing that uh, comes through loud and clear is that much of the crime and violence that exists in the community now uh, was provoked and facilitated by the Baltimore City Police Department because the police either look the other way on certain things because they have certain snitches or or certain relationships with certain people in the community. And, you know, the is out the bottle, the the violence, how do we put a cap back on? Can we get it back in the bottle? And what role do you think, the you know, if the police are going to have the attitude that they have that this this law, uh, this Maryland Police Accountability Act uh, works against them, then how are we going
0: to get that genie back in the bottle? Yeah, I I think it's an interesting, um, that is a a really difficult question. I think, Yeah, I just wrote an article a couple of weeks ago about, um, you know, people, you know, the the state's attorney made a decision to stop prosecuting low-level crimes, saying that this is something that is not, uh, the criminal justice system does not help this situation. Um, and, And she spoke at community meetings where lots of people said, okay, but what about all the crime happening in our communities? And so, you know, we're, again, I, I said this before, but the city officials are talking about these holistic approaches. I'm not sure those holistic approaches are there yet. I don't think they have come up with them. I don't think the systems are necessarily in place. And, and, and so, you know, people are talking about there being a lot of open-air drug dealing. Drug arrests in the city are down 95 percent. Um, police talk about going after violent offenders, um, but the, the proactive policing that they've employed for decades to try to, you know, not wait for a shooting to happen, but to, to, to try to stop it before it happens to try to essentially predict you know who who might be next uh doing a lot of traffic enforcement trying to find guns and things like that there's a major backlash to that the officers abused that that um that tool Um, you know you saw it in the gun trace task force where they would pull over you know 50 people in a night or they would drive at crowds of people on a corner and see who ran and they were you know in their eyes they were trying to it has, the more contacts you have, the, the more likely you are to get a gun. If you get a gun, then you did a good job that night. Um, what you don't hear about, you know, in the press or at a, a, a news conference or things like that is all the people who got stopped and sent on their way who, who had not done anything wrong. Um, and, so, and so and and police though, will tell you that these traffic stops are important. You know, you pull someone over for a taillight. And you run their name, and it turns out they have a warrant uh, for a murder in North Carolina. Or, you know, you see a gun sticking out of the, the, the seat next to them. Or you smell, smell drugs, smell marijuana, and it leads to a search, and you find something. And they, they say, if you take these things away from us, how are we supposed to be proactive? And yet again, <laughs> because of the way they, they employed those tools, they alienated the community. People felt harassed. And we're now trying to figure out, okay, so what do we, what do, we do instead? And, and, I, and again, I don't know if the answers are going to come from law enforcement at this stage. I think the city's talking about finding other ways, um, and they 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 need to put them in place because we are continuing to see a, an up, an uptick in violence. And and a lot of that is you know breaking up drug crews and, and retaliatory violence as people feel fill the void. It's a it's a it's a you know I I hate to I feel like I hedge a lot as a but as a newspaper reporter I'm really trying to see things from all the different sides and um, and I, I think that these are um, these are challenging problems.
3: You know, you're absolutely correct. But see, what what the problem is not uh, proactive policing. The problem is the attitudes of the police. For instance, you know, racism, so on and so forth. Let me give you an example. Uh, Young kids who were honor students was invited to their teacher's home for a cookout. On the way home, the kids were stopped. Slam to the ground. Now these are kids on their way to car, slammed to the ground and completely terrorized by the police. They come up with lights blinking, jumping out the car, slamming, putting guns on the kids, or what have you. That it is it, it, the attitude and the decision making of the police. They can't decipher between. Uh, a, a law-abiding black citizen, and one that's a criminal.
0: Right, everyone's but a criminal.
3: We're all criminals, and yeah. that's what the problem is. It's it's in their head, okay? So one of the things that I think some of us are going to have to do is re-engage and begin to talk about these things publicly. You know, some of us have thrown up our hands and said, the hell with it, you know. Uh, look, nothing's going to change. The institution is there and it cannot be uprooted from the roots or what have you. So, so look, just, just leave it alone, just leave it alone, okay? And so that's, that's where some of us yeah. are at this particular point, but what we have to do is to begin to re-engage uh, with the community and with the police, because remember now, the police and the community must work together. Now, one of the major problems or blocks uh, between the community and the police working together, it appears to be the FOP. What are are your thoughts on that?
0: Honestly, the FOP to me has lost a lot of power. Uh, I remember when I first started on the beat, the FOP's endorsement was highly coveted. Um, Everybody wanted the FOP's endorsement. They were appearing in commercials for officials. They were throwing around money. And I I feel like uh, since 2015, it is like the scarlet letter. I, I still think they have influence. I still think that they... Um, you know, um, have a role to play, honestly, as a, as a labor organization. But man, I, I, I you know, I, I point out in the book how, how the state's attorney, you know, ran on a pro, uh, you know, a tough on crime platform in 2014. And the, the FOP's endorsement was was wanted then. It was sought. Um, I don't see a lot of politicians showing up at events with the FOP. And I feel like the current FOP, you know, puts out statements, um, these bombastic statements. And I, and I don't know that they, they resonate. They seem aimed at at a specific crowd, and it's an insular crowd. It, the The message is for, uh, you know, their audience only, and it is not it does not resonate with the rest of the city. and And so, you know, they still, but they still, you know, as a labor as a bargaining force, I think, you know, will we'll continue to have a big say in things. But I think their their influence is, has has diminished a lot.
3: The FOP has been insulting. In fact, uh, you know, our Black Veterans group. Had even discussed forming an alliance with the uh, FOP to do some joint programs in the community to uh, begin to erase some of that stigma of animosity between the community uh, and the police. Because many of those police officers now are coming from our communities. And, you know, my favorite little cousin, you know, uh, I hope. She's not called when I need help because she's only about five feet two and we're about 95 pounds. Don't send her, send me that six foot five guy, you know, 230 pounds. I mean, you know, we joke, and joke about a lot of this stuff, but uh, things are changing, but the community has not been approached to uh, change its attitude toward the police. I mean, we have to do more, reaching out uh, to the police because these are our children, our family members, or what have you. And we know that basically they are good people. But if we do not reach out to them, then they will get trapped into that culture of ignorance. In the 60s, we had all kinds of problems with the police. I, I know you probably, you're probably too young to remember the Vini raids. Okay. I've actually been doing
0: a lot of research lately about the Pomerleau era and, and the, oh, okay. actually the genesis of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights was because he was like a, seen as like a tyrannical commissioner and who they needed to be protected from. It's very interesting how these things evolve over time, but go, go ahead. Yeah,
3: but You know, uh, what we thought then was that if we fight to get more African Americans on the police force that this would change the culture. And then we thought if we fought to get Blacks promoted to higher or, or decision-making positions or policy-setting positions, that this would change the culture, but it did not change the culture. What happened is once these people got on and then they began to move up, they had to show that they was part of the team. And so they, they were of no benefit to our community in terms of changing the culture. And so if the culture is going to be changed, it's going to have to come from the top. We can't afford to keep paying out $5, 10000000 million for all of these uh, incidences that our police officers are involved in. And then at the same time, we're paying out that money. The community is living in an insecure state. And I find that to be uh, extremely troubling because I don't see uh, any changes. Because most people I know are afraid to call the police about anything. Because you call the police about an incident, you're liable to end up in jail yourself. And so uh, this is how the police operate in the community. And we have to begin to change those attitudes in the police department. But we also must change attitudes in the community because we must be receptive to institutional change and change and personality, because look, man, I'm telling those young kids. Well, I call them kids that are like 25, 35 years of age, but they are good police officers. They are good human beings. And and how do we uh, encourage them to carry on? That's my concern. Because if they come in the community and everybody's judging all police officers based on their understanding of the Gun Trace Task Force then they will never have a chance to be good police officers. So our community must create an environment that's conducive to people being good police officers.
0: Yeah, that's
3: my, that's my, 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 my sermon for the day.
0: Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely. I think you know, civilian oversight is an interesting idea. People have been pushing that. We're, we're getting closer to, we have civilians on trial boards right now, although we really haven't seen how that's playing out. I think the city council and mayor are having more control be interesting um you know more more input but it but you but you're right within the system i think it can only change so much uh, you know when it's it's sort of defined what it is and changes are within that those parameters and they're not necessarily significant And, and and let's be honest the law allows a lot of things to go on i mean supreme court laws that allow people to be stopped and searched and and that say that you know an officer shouldn't be judged but you know you should it's based on what they thought they saw or they thought was going on and that you can't put yourself in their shoes i mean there's a lot of you know, structural things there that, are, that, are, that define how, how this is gonna go. Um, and those types of things will not be changed anytime soon.
3: Now, we, we, we need to begin to uh, make certain changes to make uh, Baltimore a more livable community. We need people to move back into the, the city. We need those people. We need certain people to stay in the city uh, because we're losing population at such a rapid rate and the population that we're losing are the people who uh, provide the the, the strongest tax base. So uh, what can we do in terms of transportation, outdoor spaces, housing, and things of this nature? Have you thought about any of that?
0: You know, in my lane, I, I don't necessarily contemplate those things. I, I see how they interact um, with, with, with the problems that exist. I, I definitely worry about the population loss. I do think that the rate of violent crime and the, the concerns of police that you're talking about play a role in people moving out if they can. And I, I'm worried about the hollowing out of certain neighborhoods where these problems are deeply entrenched. And it seems like, you know, it takes people moving out and the, the neighborhoods becoming, you know, vacant and then bulldozed for change to happen. And I think people are saying, can, can't we have change while we're still here? you know, can't you change it? And I think Barclay has been an interesting example of a neighborhood that for years, when I was on the police beat early on, Barclay was very, very troubled. Um, the problems are not, uh, you know, the things have gotten better there, and they have new developments that are not pricing people out. It's not gentrification, it's low-income homes, but they're nice. They're nice, low-income homes, they're new, and the rate of violence has gone down, and I, you know, I I, I hope that for other communities, um, but it's, you know, again, the the it's, um, it's not...
3: okay. I know Berkeley, but are there any other models across this country? Uh, I know at one time we were talking about New York City and what was happening there. And we went up and uh, extracted all of the leadership of Baltimore City from New York. Uh, is there any other city uh, that similar to Baltimore uh, that can be used as a model?
0: I'm not sure because I think some of our, you know, some of the cities that are similar to us are also having trouble getting, getting, getting out of these, these situations. And I think the ones that have done it, it it seems like they either don't have the same challenges that we have, or they did it through extreme gentrification. I mean, New York's rebirth was through, you know, aggressive crime strategies and, you know, you know, total gentrification, you know, it's so expensive. And so, you know um, I think Washington DC is similar in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I, I, you know, I'm reading Alec McGillis book um, about, you know, uh, it just came out recently called fulfillment. Um, it's, you know, ostensibly about Amazon, but it's really about economic inequalities in cities like Baltimore, St. Louis, places like that, and exploring, you know, how do we get here? I think the answers of how we get out of it are are, are challenging.
3: You know, I uh, want to get back to uh, some of the changes that people are talking about, you know, uh, in order to buy the big guns that exist in my neighborhood, the kids got to sell drugs in order to pay for them drum guns. So when you began to talk about not prosecuting drugs, uh, you know, you know, it raises uh, uh, my eyebrows because I know that guns are bought out of the trunk for cars and they, it, it's cash on delivery. And you don't have that kind of cash, about $500,000 guns, if you're not doing something illegal, especially since we're talking about people who don't have jobs. So uh, these are some of the things that I think we have to talk to you know, our, our state's attorney about it and our political leadership, because I think uh, what has happened is that the community has abdicated its responsibility uh, to maintain security to the officials. And that's that's not going to uh, bring about peace in our community. We have to be out there on the streets where the action is. These kids will respect the people from their community before they will respect outsiders. And I think that, uh, you know, what's coming across media uh, with all of this, their tactics or what have you, it makes people fearful of their own neighborhood. In my neighborhood, you know, I can walk anywhere, and, and I know that we have uh, our drugs, drug dealers, everything, everywhere. But they always speak, and they give you the respect uh, that, that you earn because you don't play games with them. They know you know what they're doing, you know. And we have a little conversation every now and then about them bringing the police because, look, you're the one who brought these police in the community. Now, if you weren't doing what you was doing, then these cops wouldn't be coming in here terrorizing us, okay? Because uh, from my perspective, you know, uh, you know, I left Georgia in 1948, you know. There you had paramilitary groups like the Ku Klux Klan who terrorized your community. I come to the city of Baltimore, and all I find is is the change is in the blue uniform. Now, uh, I had a talk with... um, one of the old-time Italian officials back in the 50s because he knew I was angry about uh, a friend who had been shot by the police with a warning shot, right? And this particular uh, uh, gentleman who was Italian, he said, look, when we were young, the Irish cops used to catch us on the streets at night take all of our clothes, our shoes included, and we'd have to run home buck naked.
0: Yeah, wow.
3: and The Irish cops dealt with the Italians. So this ain't nothing new for us as black people. We tend to think that it is, but these kinds of behaviors have existed long before black people uh, became the dominant uh, our population in our urban areas. It's always been there, but it has never been dealt with. But that same uh, Italian told me, but look around town now. When you see those contracts or what have you, they all got Italian names or what have you. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, uh, political empowerment escaped uh, the Black community. And, and, and those are some of the things that we discussed internally because when we had those three Black police commissioners, one after the other, uh, something should have been done.
0: It, it and must be infuriating. It must be infuriating, though, to know, to, like, like you said, to know these things were going on. And now the cell phone videos, people are, in a, you know, in a wider way are saying, aha, now we understand. And it's like, well, we were saying it all along.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, look, l- let me look. Uh, you know, these incidences are always with me. You know, these are things that you can never forget. You know, we used to walk from Dunbar High School out to Morgan. And on the way home, coming down Harford Road, because it was called the Ninth Ward, then, it was mostly uh, it was all basically uh, uh, Caucasians or non-African Americans. And we stopped by uh, uh, never forget Fat Wallace's house and his mother came to the door to open it for us to come in, For follow the party, the police come up <clears throat> you know, with the guns drawn and telling us to move on. And Wallace's mother said, they're coming to my house. No, they're not. And so my boy, Bugs, Bugs ended up retiring as a bird colonel because he knew he wasn't gonna get that star, right? The other guy became a multimillionaire. One of the other guys invented ultra bright toothpaste. I mean, these are the guys we're talking about now, right? Okay, and of course myself. And and one guy is a uh, is a doctor. Now it doesn't matter who you are if you African American. This is what you are subjected to, and we didn't deserve to have those guns put to our head. Now I'm trying to live beyond that and and, and look for change. But will change ever really come?
0: <laughs> you know, I, I I I think that I think. I think because there's a, there is an awareness I, I i think um people have been forced to pay attention now i think the things that they're seeing people who who might have heard your story and said well but well, what did you do to to, to pr- provoke it or would have had questions about you know like they, they they wouldn't necessarily you know they're now seeing those things and i think i think officers are aware that the people are seeing those things and i i think uh you know there's still plenty of every day there seems to be a new video coming out but i, I you know i would like to think that we're getting to a place where now there's a greater understanding some of these bills are getting put in place. Some systems are changing, and you know we're gonna, you know, see if we can get to a better place.
3: Well, I would hope so. Now, let me uh, m- move forward. Uh, when are you going to write your next book?
0: <laughs> well, you know, honestly,
3: because I'm I have a sequel to this. Now, this is just the beginning.
0: <laughs> honestly, boy, I. Too. I am for the paper still following c- continuing some of the storylines in here. I, I, I did it as much as I could. Um, and I think there's some things that may take time to, to come out. I'm still trying to talk to some of the key players and follow some threads, but um, as far, you know, I'm still covering stuff day in and day out for the Baltimore sun. We're hoping for new ownership tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, but uh, as far as next book, I don't, I, I'm, I, you know, I had a good experience writing this book. I, I, I liked being able to step back. I, I did not think, um, I didn't, I didn't know I, I was going to enjoy it as much as I did because I was intimidated by it. But I'm on the lookout for, for another topic. And I, I think I found one, but uh, I need to explore it some more. And maybe I'll be back in a couple years.
3: <laughs> when when I, picked, I picked your book up, it came in the mail last Friday. I picked it up. And after I read the first two paragraphs, I could not put your book down. But uh, and, and I can't wait now uh for the hbo thing are you looking forward to the hbo
0: series <laughs> yes i am i because the, everything those guys make is great and so i i know that the it's in good hands <laughs> and i've been a part of the process i was a consultant in the writer's room so i got to sit with all these great minds um one of the writers is actually local writer d watkins who has several books out and has been done many events with the pratt and he's he's part of the writer's room as well and uh you know i'm, I'm excited for them to to tell it um there's also a, a documentary coming out uh on hbo about the sean Suter case uh that i uh, took part in um i'm featured in that as well and that'll be out, i think later this year so you'll be seeing me a couple times on on hbo which is a strange thing to say but uh you know, there's a lot of important topics here, but I think that Baltimore, you know, um, I, you know, obviously this is not the way the city would like to be portrayed, but it's the way a lot of the city is. I and mean, there's some really challenging things that need to be looked at, and they are interesting to explore, and they are dramatic, which is why Hollywood is is interested in this. So, but, um, you know, again, I think a lot of folks would rather we we didn't have this kind of stuff to to put out there into the world, but we do, and um, you know, I, I think the uh, the show's in good hands. So.
3: <laughs> oh, look. Can, can you give us a little inside story on the Suda case? Everybody has an
0: opinion on the Suda case. Uh, yeah, I mean, or- I, you know, I, I tried to. Um, I, I, I think there's interesting evidence about it, it being a, a suicide, but I, I, I can't be conclusive about that. I, and especially through my reporting here and seeing how stories can change, how they can appear one way. And and somebody comes forward years later, and it's and it's another way. And I think there's a lot of troubling information there. Um, you know, it was such a a, a shock when it it, turn, it came out that he was you know tangentially involved with this corruption case. You know, when that when that happened, you know, there was no real inkling of that. Even though I did get a phone call that night, as I write in the book, where someone was telling me it was tied, but there was no there was nothing apparent that indicated that. And so you know, it's just a um, it was interesting how officers felt as though it was a suicide and someone was going to get wrongly charged with it. Someone, an innocent person was going to get charged because there was such desire to close this case. And so people then started to change their minds and then that became a cover-up. It was that the department didn't want to, you know, they couldn't live with having an unsolved killing of one of their own and they were making things up to, to put it onto him. And at the end of the day, I mean, it just more distrust, more, more distrust of the systems and, and people don't believe department they feel like they're making a convenient excuse and and um you know but i i I think um well there's more to come on that as well i I, i'm still covering that for the paper uh and
3: uh i won't won't press you too far on that (laughs) i'm going to wait for your next book uh before i get into that but to our audience out there listen baltimore is a wonderful city I know there are a lot of things going on in my community uh, that's frightening to people who do not live here in my community. But uh, my community is livable, uh, is a homogenous type community. Uh, There are a lot of things that we could do to make the community better, Uh, for instance, you know, we have a lot of senior citizens in my block, and I've become one of the senior citizens. <laughs> you know, I'll be eighty years old year, so so I've become one of the senior citizens. But I still have uh, a desire to make this a better community, and for those people who are out there, uh, you know, AARP uh, is committed to uh, developing livable communities, and wherever you are in the city, if you want help on developing a livable community, call AARP. AARP is waiting to engage with our uh, people. The other thing, too, is do not leave for, uh, you know, problems to elected officials or other public officials if we're going to have civility within our community, it's going to uh, come from us. Because once you call outsiders in, they have no feel for the community or the issues that are being dealt with. So uh, to all of you out there uh, who are listening on this Pratt uh, event, think about what you can do to make your community better. And if you don't, have any ideas, call AARP. We will set up a little wrap session where we can sit down and talk about, take a look at the community and talk about things that that can be done because all citizens have a right to live in a peaceful community.
0: There were some uh, questions in the chat, if I could maybe read them out loud (laughs) and answer it. Um, There was a question that one person says, as a former city police officer, I'm consciously aware of the real risks associated with Police being whistleblowers against their fellow officers. But that said, I understand the reluctance to report. I'm curious to whether senior police management will proactively stress the importance to the rank and file of the importance of outing, uh, to include anonymously the one percenters who openly and boastfully abuse their police powers. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting topic. Um, there was one um, sociologist who who called it who referred to a blue. Cone of silence where people sort of know stuff's going on, but they really don't want to step into it. They don't want to get involved. They don't trust that the department is going to handle it well. And if you speak up and then it doesn't work out, you know, then you got to work next to the guy. And I think there's a character in the book, um, Ryan Gwynn, who, who kind of goes through that. He, he suspects one of his fellow officers of, of being, um, you know, uh, corrupt and having a, an inappropriate relationship with a, like a, you know, uh, a drug dealer in the community, but he doesn't have the goods so he reports it. Nothing happens. And he's scared. He, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. If There's going to be retaliation. So uh, Commissioner Harrison right now uh, came from New Orleans and he has this program called EPIC. I forget what it stands for, but it's, it's ethical. Policing is courageous. And it, 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 it is training that it tries to get officers to you know, collectively buy into the idea that we need to look out for each other. Um, you know, you look out for your partner, make sure he doesn't get himself in trouble, make sure he doesn't go to jail. And if someone else is doing something they're not supposed to say something, this is the only way we're going to make this department better. Um, you know, I think that they've, they, they, they said that they've seen success with that in New Orleans. They instituted it just recently in Baltimore. And I think they're hoping for good results there. So we will, we will see. Um, see, there's other questions as well. I don't, I'm having trouble scrolling, but uh, I'm scrolling. It up. Up. <laughs> okay.
3: I have the one on the former city police officer. I'm consciously aware of the real risk. Yes. That's the same one. one. Uh Here's another one. Love your book. Thank you for all you do. What are your thoughts on Hogan and city leaders' childish back and forth? There are real people who are affected by crime in Baltimore. To me, they think it's a joke. What do you think about that?
0: You know, I think I think Governor Hogan's position reflects that of many people that we've been talking about outside the city who say, you know, get a, get a handle on it. You know, lock people up. You know, if people uh, commit a crime, send them to prison and send them for longer sentences and, and stop fooling around up there. And I think, you know, the city leaders are saying, you don't get it. You know, you don't understand what we're dealing with. It's more complicated than that. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know that they're going to necessarily come together. I think the governor can provide more funding for things the city wants to do. I think some of his um, initiatives have been rebuffed. Um, They're trying to get back together the criminal justice coordinating council, which was a group that met monthly and all the the state and city leaders in the city would um, uh, get together monthly and talk about things. And 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 Hogan said it was a waste of time. They would get together and they talk and then at lunch and they wouldn't accomplish anything, but it did get people in a room. And uh, I think it can be run better. and, And Mayor Scott's trying to get it started again, but ultimately you know, the governor's you know, funding for things the city wants to do, like safe streets, you know, things like that. That's where I think they can they can work together and, 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 and state resources helping out with some initiatives, because, um, you know, I think the city does have some some.
3: <laughs> well, let's see if we can get this last question. in. Okay. Oh, Mr. Fenton, I'm about 100 pages in and loving it. How long did it take you to do the research for this book?
0: You know, honestly, honestly, this was sort of a culmination of, of my entire time at The Sun. I've been here since 2005 and covering this stuff since 2008. So a lot of frame of reference for a lot of it. I had decided that Wayne Jenkins' career was going to be the arc of the book, and I, that took a while to figure that out. But once I figured that out, it fit very cleanly. I, I realized he joined the police department in 2003. What was going on in 2003? Zero tolerance. There's this, And then you can see the changing, the shifting strategies of the police department in the battle against crime and this through line of misconduct and, 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 and corruption that's occurring throughout. And I, I traced his career. I would say that aside from having covered this stuff for a while, uh, I had a really intense, I only took six months off from the Baltimore Sun to work on this. Um, so I came into it with a lot of stuff already, but then I took six months off where I was researching and writing at the same time. I came back to the paper I had to. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I kept working on it at night and I I was doing interviews and things up up to the very end. In fact I was really, really happy. I hope everybody reads the epilogue. The epilogue's very important. To me personally, and to the book, it brings the title around. It's not just we own the city being op- officers who do whatever they want own the city, but how the community owns the city, how the community, you know, the police need the buy-in from the community. And I was getting that information up until June of, of, of uh, you know, June, July of 2020, when really I was supposed to be finished the book. Um, so in a ways it was a long time coming and in a lot of ways. It was a very, very intense, short period.
3: Okay. Well, look, listen, first of all, I want to thank you, Justin, for all that you have done. And at this particular point, I think we want to do it. We have a survey to accomplish and I'm gonna turn it back over to Herb Malvo
2: Thank you so much. On behalf of the Pratt Library and AARP Maryland, thank you, Mr. Fenton, thank you, Mr. Davis for this frank and very enlightening conversation. And thank you all of you who joined us tonight. I hope you really enjoyed this evening's presentation. Please, until we see each other again, good night.
3: Thank you. See you later, Justin.
0: This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center.
2: For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.